Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show we review Minions, The Rise of Gru and the dark new Australian movie Nitram. We take a deep dive into the career of legendary movie star John Wayne. Plus, author and journalist Patrick Frey chats about his favourite movie. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Fardy, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm right here on Newstalk. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're doing well. I'm just back from Italy. Yes, since I spoke to you last, I spent a glorious week in the hills of Tuscany. How very middle class of me. But it was wonderful to get a break. It was my first time on a plane, I guess, in, in probably three years or certainly close to it. First time my youngest boy had ever been on an airplane, given all that has gone on over recent years. And it, you know, it felt like the holiday was a overdetermined event, as in it wasn't just any holiday. It was the first holiday post-COVID. So I'm sure the kids didn't have that sense, but me and my wife were certainly like, ah, we're on holiday. We've waited a long time for this. Of course, we've been places, you know, in the last three years or whatever, but we hadn't been out of the country. So it was absolutely lovely. It does occur to me though, holidays, they're so fraught with possible problems, you know, from airplanes not showing up to being delayed to something being wrong with the car that you might rent, uh, swearing at your children when they spill another can of Coke at the table. Maybe that's just me. But because our holidays are so longed for, there's such a capacity for, you know, something to go wrong because you were away and spoil it. So it's, it's a slightly fraught thing. I'm not complaining. We had a great time, but I just mean, you know, you're so happy to be there and you so want to be there that there are so many things that can seemingly go wrong to spoil that sense of expectation. And I know lots of people have had those things. Thankfully, we had a pretty incident-free holiday. Uh, now, you might be thinking, screw him and his Tuscan holiday. And you're probably right. So I took a break from, you know, watching movies and television because I had to. That was the whole point of holidays because I can't watch anything while I'm away because I'll start thinking about it. How this will, you know, I'll get to talk about this on the show. I wonder what other people are thinking. So I, I did take a complete decompress from movies and TV. But don't worry, we still have a great show for you. And I did, when I got back, start to watch this. Oh, goody. The murderers are here. What the hell are you doing? We brought dip. Oh, my, be nice. I invited them. We came to pay our respects. With a screw top? What happened? You couldn't find a box? We want to help find Bunny's killer. Her death was tragic and one of the worst days of my life. And that's actually saying something. Right, because it's all about you, millennials. Yes, now that is a clip from season two of Only Murders in the Building. Now, this is on Disney Plus, and it's not that long ago we had season one. It's just about a year ago on Disney Plus, less than a year ago. And I rave, well, did I rave about it? I think I did because I loved it. Season one of Only Murders in the Building. In case you don't know or you haven't come across it, it's Martin Short, Steve Martin, and Selena Gomez, who you heard there, who are living in this pretty fancy New York uh, apartment block, the Arconia, kind of like, you know, almost like somewhere on the Upper West Side 
I think it's on the Upper West Side. Yes, it is on the Upper West Side, but it's one of those trademark fancy buildings. And in season one, Sting is living in it. And they're all true crime podcast fans. And then there's a murder in the building and they come together due to their mutual fondness for true crime podcasts. And they end up making a podcast while attempting to solve this murder. I really liked season one. It was very... I don't want to say old fashioned, but it had the feeling of like a Martin Short, Steve Martin comedy from the 90s. Yet it's also very modern with podcasting and stuff like that. And Selena Gomez as the third character within these two kind of comedy legends work really well. And as I say, they they go about solving this murder. And season one ended with a wide open door that there would be a season two because the murder is solved, but there are more murders that happen in this building. Now, I know it's, you know, kind of unlikely that one building will contain all these murders, but hey, folks, it's television. And it turns out season two is great for all the same reasons that season one was great. It's very funny. There's elements of slapstick in it, but also it's cozy uh, in that there's something warm about this friendship that emerges between these two men and this younger girl with an interest in in podcasting and true crime. And there are things going on in their lives in season two that become a bit more interesting. Steve Martin's character, stuff from his past re-emerges. And Martin Short, who plays a theatre director, has good things going there. And Selena Gomez's character starts to branch out, let's say. Sting was in season one, which was funny. He's left and Amy Schumer, playing herself, has moved in to the apartment. And they've made the whodunit nature of this a bit more gripping uh, this time round. So I'm really enjoying it. I've seen three episodes and it's really entertaining television. A lot of fun, a lot of kind of pleasant cliff edges there's nothing terribly dark in this there's a lot of intrigue but it's 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 on the warm side of the pool not the cold side of the pool so this is really entertaining tv only murders in the building now streaming on disney plus i'm highly recommending season two so far And we turn to the week's new releases in the cinema this week, and they include Minions, The Rise of Gru. Yes, the fifth installment of one kind or another of the Minions, and then a very different movie from Australia called Nitram. I'm joined now by a resident critic, Mark Ryle, who's a little underweather, the poor fellow, but he refused to take the week off because that's his dedication to the cause, folks. Mark, how are you, Petal? I wasn't offered the week off. <laughs> come, come. <laughs> If I had known that that was an option. <laughs> yeah, I'm fine. Good man. Fair play to you. So listen, uh, now I, didn't, I was boring people at the start of the show about my foreign holiday. So uh, I didn't uh, get to the cinema at all this week, but you did, uh, did. And the first of those movies was Minions, The yep. Rise of Gru. Now this is squarely a, a kid's movie, it's fair to say. Well, yes, unfortunately it is. Now, it's it's the second Minions movie and it's the fifth overall in the Despicable Me franchise. Yeah. And for the initiated, the Minions are these gobbledygook talking yellow tic-tac things. And they started out as minor characters in Despicable Me, mm. but they have grown in popularity and to the extent where they had their own movie back in 2015. And 
as the title suggests, this one tries to be both a Minion sequel and also a Despicable Me prequel. Yes, and that despic. Sorry to interrupt you. That despicable me franchise, uh, which includes the which includes the minions, is the most successful uh, animated franchise ever, by all accounts. I think oh, nearly every one of these movies has made over a billion at the box office. Wow, which, which wow. is no small, no small change. Um, yes, so hence we have. <laughs> <laughs> another one and um, probably more to follow uh, probably more to follow yeah so this one it's set in 1976 when Gru is an aspirational supervillain and he's still in whatever the American equivalent of primary school is um, so he gets an interview for a place on his favourite supervillain team and, and Gru sorry is one of Steve the Carell. yes but sorry in terms of the minions he's what exactly just for people who don't know he's their 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 boss okay <laughs> <laughs> He's a super villain. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, so he gets this interview for uh, the this super villain team called the Vicious Six. The interview doesn't go well. Um, so to prove his worth, he steals, uh, then loses uh, this magical MacGuffin thing, and then he ends up getting kidnapped by another super villain who's voiced by Alan Arkin. And then three of the minions head off to San Francisco to try and rescue Gru, and another one goes off looking for the MacGuffin. None of that is remotely important. Okay. And Steve Carell, as you say, is voicing Gru. So, uh, I mean, you know, as you're kind of intimating that the plots on these things are, are, are kind of secondary or, or possibly not of a huge amount of importance in a way. So how does this work? Does it work? Yeah. I, let me start by saying that I really enjoyed the first two Despicable Me's. And yes, yes. To I an agree. extent, the, the previous Minions movie as well was really good. And for some reason, I don't seem to have seen the third one, or at least I can't remember seeing it. Um, but like out of the ones that I've seen, I've enjoyed them because they're they're very very funny. Mm. Um, they're Absolutely. not Ardman, yeah, they're not Ardman funny, but they do have a lot going for them, and I think the humor is clever and they've got broad appeal. Um, now the problem with the Rise of Gru is that it's just not funny enough, and okay. I was I was mildly amused for eighty odd minutes, but at no point did hilarity ensue. Oh um, dear, yeah. Now mildly amusing isn't bad. It's okay. But mm. as a going concern, I think this is starting to look like a franchise that's kind of running on fumes. Mm. Well, five movies, you know, in any franchise is a lot. I mean, not mm. you know what I mean? You have to have yeah. a lot of great ideas. Yeah. Uh, or I mentioned the plot doesn't really matter. Does, mm. But at the same time, the story has to hold you. So is the narrative structure in this lacking? Uh, for, it's it's practically non-existent. It's set in the 1970s, but there's nothing really is really made of that apart from there's a couple of disco tunes on the soundtrack, um, and there are vague nods to black exploitation flicks and martial arts pictures, which were you know very popular in the 1970s, um, but they're very very vague. And I think a lot more could have been done with that that would have appealed more to an older audience. The problem isn't it's the same writer and the same director as the last Despicable Me and the previous Minions movie. So the problem isn't with a rotating door of of creative talent. And as you say, Steve Carell is still voicing Gru, albeit, I suppose, in a higher register because he's yet to hit puberty. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think like y- younger viewers are going to enjoy this, but I'm, really, I'm afraid that there's not much that's going to appeal to parents. And I definitely think this is a case of the younger, the better, which is, it's a pity, you know? Okay, so they're just going to be entertained by those familiar characters, and yeah, yeah. Well, I, 
I I I've seen them all up until this one. Now I, some of them bleed into my memory, to be honest, because I've seen them with children, obviously. Yeah. And the first two as well, I do remember really liking, particularly the first Despicable Me movie. Going, yeah. this is very funny, and I enjoy watching was, this yeah. as well. So it's you know I, I, we always talk about the litmus test, a great kids movie, an mm. adult will gladly sit through it. This is lacking that clearly. It is, yeah. I mean, I, I think at, when when that's done really well and at their best, I think the the minions as characters they've got elements of Chaplin and Buster Keaton mm. era silent comedy, and then there's a bit of you know very choreographed uh, Three Stooges kind of stuff. But this one doesn't doesn't show the characters at their best, and the, the slapstick is still there, but it's not clever. It's been dumbed down to um, fart jokes for for want of a better term and it 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 all still looks very very slick and polished but there's nothing memorable memorable about this at all i saw this i think i think it was on monday and i had forgotten it not only i've forgotten it now but i had almost forgotten it by the before i'd left the cinema okay okay yeah that's that's not good that's not good so what so what are you going to say stars wise for minions the rise of Gru? um i'm going to give it two and a half but younger viewers will enjoy it and i will say the younger the better okay but by no means a classic of the genre it seems so that is two and a half stars for minions the rise of Gru. let's take a quick clip all right who let the kid in i thought he was a tiny man what's wrong with you you seriously think a puny little child can be a villain um yes I, i am pretty despicable you don't want to cross me. Evil is for adults who steal powerful ancient stones and wreak havoc. <gasps> and not for tubby little punks who should be at school. Learning. Taking a recess. Suck I guess stop. A clip there from Minions, The Rise of Gru, which Mark gave two and a half, which is on general release this Friday, the 2nd of July. No, the 1st of July. Now, something very different, uh, a much more serious movie is about a frightening incident back in Australia Mm. in the 90s. It's called Nitram, and it's an Australian movie, as I say. What's this about, Mark? Yeah, it's uh, it's directed by Justin uh, Kurzel, and Nitram is, it's a psychological drama um, based on one of the worst mass shooting events ever. Um, now, I 100% assume that America has the monopoly on mass shootings. And mm-hmm. tragically, it's becoming unusual if a week goes by when somebody in America doesn't go into a, sh- a school and start killing children. Um, but um, in 1996, at a tourist landmark in Tasmania, a 28-year-old called Martin Bryant shot dead 35 people and injured 23 more. And for all intents and purposes, uh, Caleb Landry-Jones is playing Martin Bryant in all but name. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the movie, he's only referred to as Nitram, which is the, the name that the kids in school used to, to taunt him. And he's, that's what his character is, is referred to in the film. But it, it is very very heavily based on those those events yeah and the the main character martin is what in real life what did he have did i read that he had intellectual difficulties yeah he he had yeah, a, a litany of of um yeah problems uh, i suppose you could call this one it's a character study of an unreadable character mm-hmm. and um so as he's portrayed, uh, Nitram is—he's extremely immature, and he 
misread situations and he's unable to form friendships or connections and he's also prone to bouts of unprovoked violence and mm-hmm. he's he's he, uh, you know Caleb Landry Jones really he kind of amps everything up he's got this dirty unkempt hair that kind of hangs over his face and it looks like bars on a prison and his, his wardrobe uh, as it develops comes from the 1960s which makes him even more of a an outsider um, but you know, I would like. I hope that Caleb Landry Jones is a good actor because it's yet another in a very, very long line of creepy characters that he has played. So you know, I really hope that he's he's just good at pretending. Okay, well, what else has he done that's very creepy? Just remind oh, us. He was in. Um, he was in. He played a really creepy character in Get Out. Oh, and, that's um, right. Yes, the yeah. Jordan Peele movie. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And he also played a really horrible character in a movie called War on Everyone, which was directed by John Michael McDonough. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's so I'm sure he is just a really good actor. This it's it's a really hard movie to talk about because on the one hand, Justin Kurzel and the screenwriter Sean Grant, they've uh, taken great pains to avoid glorifying gun violence or exploiting the victims of this atrocity. And the movie stops dead just before he begins his killing spree okay the, the, yeah the first two victims they're they're shot they're killed off screen so we know what's happening but it's not shown okay so, yeah and that's where the film ends that's where the film ends um okay so, so it's this not- is a slow steady study of how someone might be born and end up doing that's something so on the other hand, right, it's not black and white and, and Nitram isn't depicted as pure evil. And at a certain point, you have to ask, are we being asked to feel pity or sympathy for this guy? Because to be honest, I'm not sure if I'm comfortable with that. Mm. But but is, he, is the filmmaker trying to make the point that society gives us these people by how we treat certain people I and that it's almost inevitable? Uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure. I th- and as I say, I'm not not entirely comfortable with it. What it does make very, very clear, though, is that the major factor in all of these mass shooting events isn't a lack of proper mental health support, which, of course, is highly, it's, it's hugely important. But the major, major factor in all of these events is access to guns. Mm-hmm. Um, and and if, film is very, this film is very strong on that, is it? It is, yeah. It showed, okay. like, if, 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 like, the takeaway is that if he wasn't able to just walk into a shop and buy as many semi-automatic weapons as he wanted to, he would just have been a deeply disturbed individual who's obsessed with fireworks. Okay. But um, I believe the that that, they, that event um, uh, made Australia review their their gun control laws and and all you know it's so it's it's an important movie and it's unfortunately it's it's I was going to say it's timely but I mean I don't know. Unfortunately, when it wouldn't be timely. Sure. Now, listeners may sense a certain uncomfortableness. I'm wondering, is it that you were clearly felt maybe you were drawing in a way you didn't want to go? Um, I just, as I say, at a certain point, you have to ask yourself, "Am I supposed to feel sorry for this guy?" Because I certainly don't, you know. Mm. And that's probably to do. But with- you're saying the movie was was kind of forcing you to make that choice. Yeah, I mean, I suppose maybe. Yeah, it's a movie that asks it's it's a it's a difficult watch um, okay but Le- Caleb Landry Jones is fantastic in the lead and the, the cast are, are really good across the Judy board Judy Davis is in it as well yeah I haven't seen in a long time it's more or less just four characters that um 
his 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 parents who are really worn out. They're played by Anthony Lapaglia, who I haven't seen on its yeah. screen in a while, and yeah, the immense Judy Davis. And there is a, a very interesting dynamic between him and his parents. Uh, the father, who who also is suffering from depression, is a lot more lenient and forgiving of his son's behavior. But Judy Davis, as the mother, she appears to be very aware that her son is beyond redemption and she kind of exudes this resentment that she has no other option but to continue sharing a space with him for what seems like forever and then uh, the final character Essie Davis plays a very wealthy Grey Gardens type eccentric heiress who who forms this very unlikely bond with uh, him and that seems very unlikely if it weren't for the fact that this was based on actual events. You would say that mm. this is stretching the boundaries of credibility, but <laughs> it it all happened. Wow. It sounds kind of fascinating to me. So I can tell you were uncomfortable, but I mm. mean, as a movie, albeit about an incredibly difficult subject and, and some, well, very timely, how did you find it? I thought it was great. I'm going to give it a three and a half because it's not at all pleasant spending time with this character, but mm. it, it's, it's certainly interesting. Yeah, it certainly sounds that. Okay, and this, I think it's fair to say, is getting a limited release. It's going to be in certain cinemas, one of which is the IFI. So that's three and a half for NITRAM, uh, which is on, as I say, limited release around the country, and two and a half for Minions, The Rise of Gru. From his sickbed, he rose like a phoenix from the ashes to bring us this week's movie reviews. Mark, thank you very much. Thank you, John. Mark Ryle there chatting to me about the week's new releases. Up next, we take a deep dive into the career of the one and only John Wayne. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time, News Talks, TV and Movie Show, and I'm John Fardy. Feel free to get in touch with me by tweeting me at John underscore Fardy, or you can email us, screentime at newstalk.com. Now... It's July 4th on Monday, and it got me thinking about something I meant to bring you a couple of weeks ago, but we ran out of time, and that is the life of the legendary actor and indeed career of John Wayne. Yes, he is as American as apple pie. And in a way, you know, there have been theses written about he came to represent America uh, in all sorts of ways up until a certain period of time, and then perhaps you know, uh, Hollywood or maybe society in general, moved away from him a bit, but he got some redemption in later years in terms of his career. Anyway, you know what? Let me stop there and take a listen to this. And that means I'm going to tell you what to do every day and every minute of every day. I'm going to tell you how to button your buttons. I'll even tell you when to blow your noses. And if you do something I don't like, I'm going to jump. And when I land, it'll hurt. I'm going to ride you till you can't stand up. But when you do stand up, you're going to be Marines. If ever there was an actor that symbolised America, and also masculinity, it's John Wayne. He takes his place beside Apple Pie and Mount Rushmore, draped in the Star Spangled Banner. What you might not realise is that Wayne, away from acting, was also deeply committed to being a patriot and sometimes wandered into areas that make for uncomfortable listening nowadays. So it seems to me that when a man calls himself an Afro-American, a Mexican-American, Italian-American, Irish-American, Jewish-American, what he's saying is, I'm a divided American. 
Yet this tough American began life with a strange cross to bear. Certainly for turn of the 20th century America. Being christened Marion Morrison by a mother who appeared to have little time for him in the family scheme of things. Here's Wayne's daughter who explains this in a recent BBC documentary called John Wayne, the Unquiet American. His mother favoured his younger brother very much over my father. And then she named him Marion, which is very much of a feminine name. So in growing up, I think he didn't have the love or attention that he could have gotten from his mother. Then on the other hand, he had to deal with his name and people made fun of him. So I think he had an insecurity in his early years. That's where it started. Born in 1907 in Iowa, his father moved the family to a dirt farm in the West. And it wasn't very successful and they had an impoverished childhood that left Wayne hating farm life and making his subsequent roles as cowboy somewhat ironic. But Wayne escaped the farm life when he won a football scholarship to university. But his hopes of playing in the big leagues were dashed when he realised he simply wasn't fast enough. Wayne took a job as a prop boy at Frock Studios and worked occasionally as a movie extra and sometimes stunt double. And it was a job that would change his life. He came to the attention of Raoul Walsh, a director, who found Wayne's presence to be just what he needed in his new western, The Big Trail. Raoul had simply seen Wayne working on a film lot and was so impressed with how he moved and the way he looked that he cast him. Although his acting in the movie certainly wasn't the stuff of De Niro, his good looks, graceful moves and his ability with a gun seemed to anoint him as a natural. I started with this outfit and I'll be with it at the finish. Who says so? I'm just telling you. I got two reasons. One is I told Wilmore I'd scout the train through. And the other is a little personal business I aim to transact at the end of the trail. The movie was a flop. And for the next 10 years, Wayne was confined to B-Westerns, often playing the same character in different movies. And the movies were pretty ropey. But Wayne's career was salvaged in 1939 by a stagecoach that rode into town, led by famous director John Ford. Ford was a massive Hollywood director, and he cast Wayne in a central role. You're the notorious Ringo Kid. My friends just call me Ringo. Nickname I had as a kid. Right name's Henry. Didn't I fix your arm once when you were bucked off a horse? That was my kid brother broke his arm. You did a good job, Doc. Even if you was drunk. What happened to that boy whose arm I fixed? He was murdered. It was Wayne's breakthrough role and established a movie partnership between Ford and Wayne which would give cinema some of its greatest westerns and more besides. Wayne became the archetypal American hero who stood up for the innocent against the villains. After Stagecoach, Wayne was finally on the A-list but then this happened. On December 7th, 1941, Japan, like its infamous Axis partners, struck first and declared war afterwards. With America's entry into World War II, many of the leading Hollywood stars went away to join the war effort. Wayne faced a dilemma. Could he leave his family of now four children? And also, more importantly, leave his finally blossoming movie career? Wayne never signed up, although often threatened to. Instead, during the war years, he made 15 movies. 
Ironically, Wayne, while not actually being in the army, became the idealized fighting American in movies like The Flying Tigers. There's an army truck out of here for a show day after tomorrow. Yeah. But I'm still a good flyer, Jim. I'll knock down ten of those rats for the one of our boys. It's out of my hands now. None of these men will ever fly with you again. After the war, Wayne became one of Hollywood's biggest stars. With his roles as gunslingers and soldiers, he seemed to typify America's post-war confidence. As Wayne continued to be seen as the ultimate all-American star, his politics also started to reflect this. As America got over World War II, the new enemy was communism. Wayne had a leading role in the Motion Picture Alliance for the preservation of American ideals and even served as its president for a time. The organisation was a group of conservatives who wanted to stop communists from working in the film industry. The past ten years, the disciples of dictatorship have had the most to say and have said it louder and more often. All over the world, they pour their mouthings into the ears of the people, wearing them down their resistance by repeated hammerings of half-truths. That's where our crusade for freedom comes in. Yet back in the movie world, Wayne continued to make movies. And they weren't just war or cowboy movies. He started to play romantic leads, often opposite Maureen O'Hara. You've probably heard of this little movie from 1952. I'd like to tell you about The Quiet Man. He's John Wayne in a picture you'll soon be cheering. It's the story of Sean Thornton, a right-intended man who came from America to forget his past in Innisfree. There he met a fiery red-headed lass, and the village marriage broker went to work. That's a pretty bonnet you have on. Bonnet? Don't you be talking to me about bonnets. After leaving mine stuck up there like a... Easy now. Have the good manners not to hit the man until he's your husband. And his partnership with Ford continued unabated, making such classics as Ford Apache and Rio Grande. But they really pushed the boundaries of the Western genre in 1956, when they made The Searchers. Maybe the greatest project they ever did, and maybe the greatest Western ever. Wayne plays Ethan Edwards, a Civil War veteran who embarks on a journey to rescue his niece from an Indian tribe. I found him! I found Lucy! What you saw was a buck wearing Lucy's dress. I found Lucy back in the canyon. What was she? What do you want me to do, draw you a picture? Spell it out? Don't ever ask me. As long as you live, don't ever ask me more. As the 50s turned into the 60s, things changed a bit in America. Free love, civil rights and Vietnam made for a heady time. And Wayne, with his all-American image and his much-disposed right-wing views, was viewed by many as out of step. Wayne intensified his political stance in 1968 when he made and starred in The Green Berets, which was a pro-Vietnam movie that just about every movie critic lambasted it for its overt propagandism. They're elite corps commandos, nameless and faceless in a hundred newsreels and dispatches. Now you'll know them. And you'll know there are as many different kinds of courage as there are names. LZ is a meadow just over that rise. Let's move out. Move out. Wayne washed away the critical backlash, though, with his next film. In True Grit, he played an over-the-hill frontier marshal wearing an eye patch who's hired by a young woman to track down her father's killer. Wayne found solace in the character of Rooster Cogburn, a man of strong conviction 
who is at odds with a changing world. I turned old Bo around and taking them reins in my teeth, I charged them boys firing two Navy sixes. <laughs> they must have all been married men that loved their families because they scattered and run for home. And it would finally land him an Oscar. John Wayne in two If I'd have known that, I'd have put that patch on 35 years earlier. <laughs> in his final movie, Wayne played an ageing gunfighter, his character in The Shootist, hoped to spend his final days peacefully, but got involved in one last gunfight. And the gunfighter was dying from cancer. Why don't you just say it flat out? All right. You have a cancer. Advanced. Can't you cut it out, Doc? In 1978, life imitated art, with Wayne being diagnosed with stomach cancer. Wayne died the next year. His friends and colleagues lobbied American Congress that he be awarded a special congressional gold medal for his service to film and culture. It was duly awarded, and Wayne's Quiet Man co-star Maureen O'Hara's speech to the committee says it all, really. To the people of the world, John Wayne is not just an actor, and a very fine actor. John Wayne is the United States of America. He is what they believe it to be. He is what they hope it will be. And I feel that the medal should say just one thing. John Wayne, American. Yes, me. And a lot of other voices telling you all about the life of John Wayne, a true American film legend, it has to be said. And a fascinating career. And hopefully there were some things in there that you might not have known. Up next, journalist Patrick Frayne on his favourite movie. Now, you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. It's that stage of the week where we chat to someone about their favourite movie. Patrick Frayne is one of the best-known Irish journalists writing for the Irish Times, whose pieces I've been enjoying for years. And two years ago, he published his first book, OK, Let's Do Your Stupid Idea, to critical acclaim, and rightly so. And I'm delighted he joins me now to chat about his favourite film. Patrick, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Now, this movie, Stonewall classic, but it's never been chosen before, which is wonderful. So would you tell our listeners what you've opted for as your favourite film? So I've opted for, for I, I was thinking of maybe picking something incredibly highbrow, like a Fellini film or some arthouse movie from the 90s or the 60s. And in the end, I just thought I'd be honest because my favourite film is Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Um, ah. Well, which, we appreciate your honesty. So, so tell yeah. us why. So, it. I actually saw the Life of Brian first, which mm-hmm. is their, their second movie. So, the Holy Grail is their first film after their uh, groundbreaking TV show, Monty Python's Flying Circus. And I remember, as I'd say, I was about thirteen or fourteen, flicking through the stations in my friend's house. We came across the Life of Brian. And it slightly blew my mind. And then I learned what Monty Python were. And shortly afterwards, I saw the Holy Grail. And I think there's certain things that had a huge impact on my brain and how I think about the world and how I write. Mm -hmm. Um, And Monty Python is one of those things. Like, um, and I think the Holy Grail is their best. 
it's the best example of what they do so well. Um, and I've kind of realized the thing I love in comedy, like we can get into all the details about the film, but on a very basic level, the thing I love in comedy is when people get really highbrow about stupid stuff or <laughs> they get yeah. really silly about highbrow stuff. Yeah. So um, in the Monty Python oeuvre, there's loads of both those things. You yeah, know? that's a very good point. And so just just tell our listeners, because, you know, it, it, it's a while ago now since it was released. What What's going on in the Holy Grail? So it's basically the King Arthur story but uh, thrown into the Monty Python sensibility. So you, you know where you're situated from the very first scene when you hear the sound of horses' hooves and then hoving into view is um, Graham Chapman dressed as King Arthur um, and he's pretending to ride a horse. He's just kind of skipping along and behind him is his humble batsman who's like banging two coconut shells together and that is how people ride horses in the Holy Grail, <laughs> yes. which... Which is which sets the tone for the rest of the movie, and then I think the immediate next scene is a discussion with some guards on a castle gate who are curious where they got the coconut shells because coconuts are tropical, <laughs> and there's like they get into a discussion then about maybe they were carried by migratory swallows and all like all this ornithology comes into this ridiculous <laughs> conversation. Um, and I, as a kid, this stuff just blew my mind. I like it's still to this day, like when people get into all the culture war arguments about comedy and they mm -hmm. go, oh, you can't be funny anymore because you can't be horribly insulting to people. Um, I just think of Monty Python and how much of their stuff is just geniusly funny by mining silliness and mining all of the great education they had for, like, it's kind of like, you know, I, I kind of love stuff that's slightly overeducated, but yeah. using that for like nefarious, humorous purposes. And are you saying that Monty Python, not to go down a rabbit hole with you about, you know, the philosophy of comedy, but do you see yeah. Monty Python in a large way as kind of victimless comedy? I, I mean, I think some of their stuff probably does have victims, but I think largely it's jokes at the expense of the culture they're in. Mm. Like, so a lot of their, if there's any targets, and sometimes you look at you go, I don't know, I'm not even sure what the target of this joke is. It's just, it's just using a trope that's very familiar and it's flipping it on its head. Um, I think kind of like the Beyond the Fringe guys in the 60s. Yeah. A lot of their targets were a kind of, British fuddy-duddy establishment figures who actually, in a way, don't really mean anything anymore. Mm. You know, yeah. it's old army colonels or it's kind of angry schoolmasters. The people that Graham Chapman and John Cleese were amazing at playing. Yeah. And, you know, you and I have a similar vintage. So I remember me and my buddy uh, in West Dublin getting a VHS of this and the scene at the time, now I was probably 13, that I just couldn't stop laughing about was the guy who continues to fight even though he's basically being dismembered with every sword. <laughs> have you a favourite scene? Or? Um I love, so I love that scene. That's the scene where he's like, he's losing his limbs and he just goes, mm. it's just a scratch. <laughs> yes. And King Arthur doesn't want to keep fighting him because he's basically fighting a limbless man. Um, uh, like, I love that stuff. I love my favorite scene because it, and it kind of sums up, is when Arthur meets these peasants um, played by, I think, Terry Jones and Michael Palin. Mm. And he goes, I am your king. I am Arthur, king of the Britons. And they go, I thought we were an autonomous collective. And they get into this big argument about the system of government they prefer to have. Yeah. Um, 
I just find I just find it kind of weirdly subversive. Like I think that silliness is an amazing tool in life if you get given it by someone like Monty Python early. Yeah. Because life is I well, my this is probably my worldview, which is slightly dark in a way, is life is kind of absurd. So there's an awful lot of things that are it's important to laugh at. Yeah. And Monty Python were really good at pointing out the scope of that to me. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. It it is a brilliant film. And uh, finally, then, just uh, not to put you on the spot, but obviously, Life of Brian, hugely controversial, banned in Ireland. This didn't ruffle any feathers, did it? Or 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 do you know? Or um, it's funny. Like, just I don't think this did. Like, just to kind of briefly put it in context as a film, I actually think, like, apart from anything else, it's a really good film. Like, it does all these kind of mad things. Like, it breaks the fourth wall regularly at the Mm. end. It's not even a spoiler, I guess, but at the end of the film, you're suddenly very aware it's a film. (laughs) I've forgotten about that, yeah. yeah. Then there's, like, it's filmed by, it's Terry Jones and Terry Gilliam. So it actually looks kind of great. And it was done on an insane budget. And then, just in terms of how the humour works... My favourite fact about uh, the Holy Grail is that when they first screened it for people, people weren't laughing. And the reason was they figured it out, like they were really depressed and they went off and they tried to figure it out. And they realised it was the score. They had this score that was kind of, they got a professional score made for it. I can't remember who did it. Okay. And then they realised they got an album of like heraldic tunes that you can now hear towards it. And when they put that ridiculously pompous music on it, suddenly it worked because it was it it was just telling people the kind of movie it was lampooning mm. and it was putting things into context and even that um like so much of it uh i could just waffle on about this for ages but so much about it <laughs> don't worry i'll call time on it shortly before it sounds like there's two 13 year olds sitting in a house yeah. in Dublin. but so much of it is played straight like humor mm. is like, okay, obviously they get really extreme at times, but so much of what works in Monty Python is that, you know, and in most great comedy is they're playing it like they're just genuinely confused people in a scenario, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, so no matter how silly it gets, you've got like a pompous character who's taking it completely seriously and you often have another character who thinks it's completely mad, but they're, they, they're actually really good actors around that stuff as well. Yeah. Well, that is absolutely brilliantly described. Monty Python's The Holy Grail. So thank you for that. Listen, I, I was saying at the start about your book. Now I've read this, which is great. My wife gave it to me the previous Christmas ago or any, anyway, it's just that COVID has fried my brain. Christmases are yeah. going into each other, but it's called Let's Do Your Stupid. Okay. Let's Do Your Stupid Idea. And it's been warmly received. And like at the outset, like the thing is, I remember hearing about this and one part of me would go oh, a collection of essays by an Irish Times journalist and no disrespect to the Irish Times but any journalist I don't know writing a collection of essays on their life I don't know it seems kind of oof, what what's going to be to that really and yet it's a brilliant book because you write about stupid and poignant things that have happened to you over the years and in a way it's a life less ordinary not for me to explain your book to you but but I I was really taken with how some of the stuff that happened to you is bizarre, but some of it is not humdrum, but everydayness, but 
brilliantly yeah. written. So because you, you deal with funny things that happen to you, like jumping out of an airplane or nearly getting shot on the Cora. And then there's more serious stuff about when you possibly thought about having children and, and more serious stuff along the way and a bit about sibling rivalry in there. So I'm just wondering, though, when you sat down to write it, did, did you have a sense that I think there's a story in me that other people will be interested in? And did you put away the doubts like I'm suggesting that maybe you might have had? Um, I think it was because it's a couple of things. So like as well as Monty Python, I've always loved, say, humor writers like David Sedaris or kind of humorous essayists like Nora Ephron. So I'd always known that there's a way to filter ordinary stuff into something interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so I always had a night to maybe doing that at some point. Okay. I think it's also because I wrote that when I was 44. Um and I had never really written personal stuff before. Sure. Like I'd always written for the paper, either about cultural stuff or interviewing people and doing reporting um, or about other things. So I think there was just a, a lot of stuff in my brain I'd not written down. Um, so it, and it happened, it didn't start as a book. It just started as me writing about specific things. And then there was a collection. And then my editor thought there was a book in it. I, I mm. don't know if I set out to write it as a book. Um, okay. I'm glad it is a book. And yeah. actually, like, it became fun then trying to structure it as yeah. a novel, or not a novel, as a memoir, <laughs> because I used to be in bands. So I got really yeah. into the, the track listing of it, you yeah. know, the order of stuff and what you need to make it kind of well rounded. And I started adding essays based on that. Um, like, I actually think in, like, you know this from film, like it's not so much what happens in something as how it's told makes sure. something worth doing, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so for me, it's about, and actually I saw Zadie Smith give a lecture once where she talked about writing in all contexts as a kind of transmission of consciousness. Mm -hmm. So it's not, so I, I was never inhibited by the idea that none of this stuff was particularly extraordinary. Yeah. Because I'd read so many things over the years by people writing about not hugely extraordinary things in amazing ways. Not to say that I thought it was going to be amazing, but it, <laughs> but it didn't inhibit me, you know, the idea yeah. that, you know, this is pretty humdrum to some degree. You well, know? Well, well, yeah, and probably humdrum's probably over-egging it. But what I meant was, you know, it, you didn't go to Mount Everest or whatever, and yet it's a brilliant yeah. book about the things that happened to you. And I, I highly, highly recommend it. And just on that, I mean, it's it's... I'm not sure of the sales, but there's been a lot written about it. I mean, it was very well received. I, I, I'm sure that fills you with immense pleasure. Yeah, no, it was lovely. And actually, the most interesting thing actually is the the more there's a, there's some serious stuff dealt with in it, and I've got a lot of um, contact from people about particular essays. Sure. So the one you mentioned about not having kids, and then there was another one about care work, which because I was mm -hmm. a care worker for a while when I was younger. And a lot of people contacted me about those essays, um, which again is, you know, you think you're writing about something quite particular, but the reality is loads of people can relate to these things or haven't seen to some degree. You're doing a kind of bit of a job, like you're being doing something useful by writing some of that stuff down because people like to see their lives reflected. Yeah. You know, um, and not everyone necessarily sees that stuff reflected. Given its reception, I mean, you can't write another memoir. You'll start to sound like a 90s pop star if you do. But I mean, have you have you another book on the go? Oh, 
I'm sure I will have. Like, basically, I just write in bibs, bits and bobs and then try and figure out if there's a project. Okay. So, uh, I am writing away in bits and bobs, but um, I'm not sure what shape it's going to take yet. Okay. Well, we shall see. And we look forward to whatever shape it is. His favourite movie is Monty Python and the Holy Grail. An excellent choice by an excellent journalist and now author. Patrick Frayne, thanks a million. Thank you. I'm 37. What? I'm 37. I'm not old. Well, I can't just call you man. You could say Dennis. I didn't know you were called Dennis. Well, you didn't bother to find out, did you? I did say sorry about the old woman, but from behind you looked... What I object to is you automatically treat me like an inferior. Well, I am king. Oh, king, eh? Very nice. And how do you get that, eh? By exploiting the workers by hanging on to outdated imperialist dogma which perpetuates the economic and social differences in our society. If there's ever going to be any progress... Dennis, there's got... some lovely filth down here! Oh! How'd you do? How'd you do, good lady? I'm Arthur, King of the Britons. Whose castle is that? King of the who? The Britons. Who are the Britons? Well, we all are. We are all Britons. And I am your king. I didn't know we had a king. I thought we were an autonomous collective. Monty Python's The Holy Grail there as chosen by Patrick Frayne as his favourite movie, a great movie. And uh, Patrick Frayne's book, OK, Let's Do Your Stupid Idea, is a great read. Something you can dip into as well as read as a kind of collective from start to finish. And my thanks to him. That is it for this week. Next week on the show, I'm going to be talking to some great English actors and actresses for The Railway Children Return, the updated classic. And uh, they'll include Tom Courtney and Sheridan Smith. I'm all also going to be talking to one of the original housewives, uh, Kyle Richards, yes, of Beverly Hills Housewives. Kind of odd for me, but there you go. Let's see what happens. So an interesting show next week. Just remind you, this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5 p.m. on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud, and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6 p.m. right here on Newstalk. If you want to get in touch with me at any stage during the week, you can email me, screentime at Newstalk.com, or you can tweet me, John underscore Fardy. Thanks to Anne-Marie Kane who helped out on the show. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the rest of your weekend and stay safe.